We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we are continuing our book review of Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster, and I think we're on episode 14. So really, you, I'm good. Thank you. We're really covering some ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're going to cover Deuteronomy hopefully today. Yeah, we'll we'll be able to cover that. Um, first off, though, give us a little update on your shoulder. Well, it still hurts, so I'm still having surgery. Okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> well, I'm, you know, working on a another historical fiction novel and I came so I have to do a battle scene and I have no I have no awareness of that right that's a huge um lack in my skill set how would you describe a battle scene so I'm reading some other guys that are really good at doing that and one of the lines that this guy made in the course of of his points about battle was I forget exactly what he was talking about. It was battle, you know, generally speaking. But I think he said something to the effect that what he was trying to do was not give knowledge about, but rather understanding of battle. And I thought that was such a fantastic clarification. Mm -hmm. And so I I thought instantly of of our podcast. You know, personally, I'm not trying to in necessarily, it's not a bad thing, but I'm not necessarily trying to increase our listeners' knowledge about the Bible. I'm trying to increase the understanding of the Bible. So I really benefited from that guy. Yeah, good thought. It was good. And then I was reading another book, Hampton. I will leave unstated the general subject because it has to do with some crazy things that walk walk around on our planet but in the in the middle of that this guy quoted soren kierkegaard and i'm sure you've heard of that philosopher yes but i couldn't tell you what he said well i couldn't very much either i can i can only remember kant (laughs) <laughs> because because Frank Turek says thumbs up Kant as saying you can't know anything. <laughs> so I knew it was going to be some catchy, play. That's catchy enough that I can remember that. 
you know that almost works in german too right the the verb like kernen or whatever you know to be able to or something yeah yeah so so anyway yeah so anyway uh we have a little boy there's a girl on the team sylvia do you remember her little sylvia on this mm-hmm, i do so her younger brother he's just a little munchkin you know ankle biter i don't know six seven <laughs> years old and his name is soren i always thought that was so cool so anyway <clears throat> sophie's sophie's younger siblings am i in the right family or no no Sil- sylvia um not not Sophie, but but anyway. Okay, wait. So here's here's our quote from Soren Kierkegaard. There are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. So that's a good way to say that. Mm-hmm. That's that's a two-edged sword. Right. You can believe what's wrong. That'll lead you astray. Or you can not believe what's right. That'll lead you astray. So that's very related to our favorite saying to fool someone and to convince them that they've been fooled. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, just thought that was fun. Let's start out this way on our Deuteronomy study through Dempster. <clears throat> well, I want to read First Corinthians chapter 2. I've read this before. This is just a, a central passage in theology, though that kind of raises, I'm going to pose this as a trivia question. You know, the Bible contains theology, obviously, but it wasn't written as theology huge chunks of it were written as history right a lot of it's written as poetry a lot of it's written prophetically but but even there a lot of the prophecy has more to do with correcting the current political situation literally than it does you know, like telling the future <clears throat> obviously there is that there is telling you know foretelling but mostly there's forth telling. So <clears throat> it's a fun question to ask, which books of the scripture are most like what we would consider like raw theology? <clears throat> and I'm just asking that metaphorically. I, I know what I would say. I'm not saying my answers are correct, but the way I think about it, the, the books that most closely resemble raw theology are Romans and Ephesians. Right. right. So a, a lot of Paul's letters had to do with uh, issues in the churches at hand. So you're getting theology applied. But Ephesians, they don't they're not struggling with some I- huge issue that he has to address. So he can just, you know, lay out theology. And Romans is more like Paul's address to the Rome. He wants to collect some money from Rome on his for his journeys, you know, to help the Jews. So he's laying out his theology because some people have, you know, quibbled with it. Mm -hmm. Right. So when I get there here, I want you guys to know ahead of time where I'm coming from. So it's really his theology. So those two books are 
raw theology, I would call it. In Corinthians, there's some issues there. Right. So Paul has to address one of them, and uh, Dempster's going to touch on this this morning when we read some of Deuteronomy, his thoughts about Deuteronomy anyway. So I wanted to fill out some of our pre-understanding of the concept of revelation slash inspiration. So Paul's going to address that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting in verse 6, he says, Now we do speak wisdom among the mature. Okay, I'm going to interrupt the text. I apologize ahead of time. Isn't that interesting when he's going to talk about revelation and inspiration, but his term for it is wisdom? Right. <clears throat> so we do speak wisdom among the mature but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are perishing. Instead, we speak the wisdom of God, hidden in a mystery that God determined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things that no eye has seen or ear heard, or mind imagined. These are the things God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed these to us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the things of a man except the man's spirit within him? So, too, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. And we speak about these things, not with words taught by human wisdom, but with those taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The one who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is understood by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to advise him but we have the mind of Christ. So I wanted us to have that passage in our mind as we began. <clears throat> Here's uh, one other bit of introduction. You know, swim coaches, Hampton, can't just dive into the scriptures. They have to warm up ahead of time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy through the eyes of our great guide, Stephen Dempster. But Dempster does not take, take pains to elucidate uh, the book of Deuteronomy as a whole, the structure of it. So structure, as you're reading the biblical text, you know, is critical to the understanding of the text. We're not reading an English novel. Right. right. It's, it's Hebrew scripture. 
And Deuteronomy has a hard and fast structure that Dempster doesn't really account for. I'm not saying any anything that Dempster says is wrong. I'm not making that point. I'm just saying we have to put Dempster's ideas about Deuteronomy within the context of the structure of the book itself. So Deuteronomy, we've mentioned this on other podcasts before, but it's critical to see this book as a covenant. It is an ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaty, just about as clearly as you could present it. And anyone in, in Moses's day would have recognized that. So we've lost some of that through the ages. The words, of course, always communi- communicate, but when you see them in their original setting, the context, the structure of what's being discussed, they take on a deeper significance. So ancient ancient suzerain vassal treaties, so a great king, you know, ruling over his kingdom. Like when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would come and kick your butt in battle, he'd make you sign a treaty. And mostly that treaty was about what he would do for you and then what he was going to require of you in return. Right. And mostly he wants money, right? He's got an empire to run, but he'll protect you. So what you're going to get from him is defense, and what you're going to do is pay him every couple of years. He's going to come by and collect however much you agreed to pay him. And, you know, he's going to conduct those negotiations with the heavy hand because he could just kill you. So you know, if you if you want to survive, then you're going to agree to pay. But he'd rather not kill you. I mean, he'd rather collect the money. Right. But mm-hmm. he could. Yeah. So, so anyway, what he's going to do when he signs a deal with you is he's going to have a preamble to the section you're going to sign later on. He's going to have a historical prologue. Like, here's how we got to this point. Then he's going to have general stipulations, you know, the basic ABCs of what he wants. Then he's going to want specific stipulations, like he's going to elaborate those general points. Then he's going to have blessings and curses, right? Your blessing is I'll protect you. Your curse is if you don't pay up, I will wipe you out. And he's going to have witnesses. So Deuteronomy has exactly those things. Let me read from one of our buddies, Eugene Merrill. He's got a com- commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. In his introduction, at one point, he says this. He's going to outline the specific things I just did. So he says the preamble. That's Deuteronomy chapter 1, first five verses. The purpose here is to introduce matters of setting and occasion. Since it's important to show that the covenant text to follow is one originated by the great king himself that is Yahweh and that is being mediated by a divinely appointed mediator spokesman that's Moses this information is carefully spelled out that's what you see 
exactly in the first five verses of Deuteronomy. By the way, <clears throat> so you recall Israel's history, and eventually we'll get to this, uh, you know, not too far down the road. They're going to ask for a king. Yeah. Right. Well, isn't Deuteronomy saying you have a king? Uh huh. Then that's why Samuel's so mad. You know, when they ask that, and God says to Samuel, "Hey, they're not rejecting you; they're rejecting, rejecting me. me." Yeah. That his sovereignty is such that he works it out. Well, I'll give you a king, and eventually, that's going to be him himself, right? Jesus is going to be king. Mm -hmm. So they're never going to get out from under that authority. But the book of Deuteronomy is, is stating that God's their king. He's the, the suzerain. So anyway, the second section, the historical prologue. The first five verses were the preamble. The prologue, so chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 4. The right of the great king to assert his hegemony, I love that word, over his vassals is often based on their past relationships. So perhaps he or an ancestor had conquered them or had delivered them from the oppression of a third party. There may have been instances of a special protection or other favor extended by the great king benefits that certainly ought to elicit loyalty and gratitude from his people. It might even be that the relationship had been stormy and that the present covenant was being imposed in order to prevent thought of rebellion or other insubordinate or recalcitrant behavior. The historical resume here in Deuteronomy consists primarily of retracing Israel's journey from Sinai to the plains of Moab, a narrative account punctuated by instances of Israel's rebellion and God's retribution, the entire section is designed to show that the Lord had a claim on his people, despite their disobedience, had brought them to the present time and place so that he might reaffirm his covenant commitment to them. That is exactly what you see in the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. Right. Well, I think it's interesting, too. It's a covenant, which, you know, goes back. The Abrahamic covenant was all about his dominion and dynasty and the, you know, promises to Jacob and Isaac, you know, after that. The Noahic covenant. So it's kind of interesting that, that he doesn't point that out. Yes. About Deuteronomy. The Yes. You mean Dempster? Yeah. Yeah, th that did interest me that he didn't do that. Um, and of course, you know, I'm careful. Yeah, probably to, not that he doesn't know that. It's, you know, he probably chose to let, leave it out. But oh, 100%. He knows this. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So then, here, good observations. <clears throat> so here's the third section that you get in a suzerain vassal treaty the general stipulations like the basic agreement, the big ABCs. And obviously, within that, you're going to find the Ten Commandments, right? See, we, we just know those, it, like we memorize those in Sunday school. But we don't 
really put them in their proper context. That's the ABCs of the covenant of the great king with his people. Here's the behavior he's going to want while he rules over you. There's 10 things. Yeah. Right, very, very basic, very broad. Okay, so I'm not going to read him on that section because I've I've just explained that. But that's what you see in the next like six chapters of Deuteronomy. And the core of those six chapters is the Ten Commandments. Okay, then the next section is going to detail the basic stuff further, like any contract does. Right. So, for instance don't murder well what what about if someone you know a foreign army attacks us so how does don't murder apply to war mm -hmm. well it'll explain that right so <clears throat> but i'll read him on that so the fourth section is the specific stipulations and just in your mind just hold that as explanation of the basic ones okay so next follows a continuing, and this is the bulk of Deuteronomy. This is like 13, 14 chapters of this. Next follows a continuing enlargement of the covenant regulations outlined in the form of apodictic laws. Like if this happens, then do that <clears throat> and so on. And you shall do X, Y, Z, right? The, the formulations of law. So one of those is casuistic, one of those is apodictic. One might view the development in terms of concentricity in which the Shema forms the focal point. The Decalogue, a specific categorizing of the principles of the Shema, the remainder of the general stipulation section as a narrative and paranetic, that means like teaching, comment, on so the Decalogue, Shema, you mean Deuteronomy 6, 4? Yes. Israel, the yes. Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Yes. And so you'll see, it, and that's the core, the Ten Commandments are really an exposition of that one sentence. And then all the laws are really exposition of the Ten. So that's why he said you can look at it with concentricity. You know, imagine it like a bullseye. In the center of that bullseye is the Shema. Okay. And then the next ring is the Ten Commandments. And then the next ring further out is the explanation of the Ten Commandments. So that's how to organize your thoughts around the book of Deuteronomy and the law in general. The very name Deuteronomy, right, means the second law. Yeah, yeah the second giving of the law. So the Hebrew name is these are the words. <laughs> it's great. <clears throat> so uh, the remainder of the general stipulation section is a narrative and paranetic comment on the Decalogue and the specific stipulation section as the application of the principles to every aspect of life. That is as case law rooted and grounded in the covenant relationship. So then you get the blessings and curses. That's the fifth section. And you see that in Deuteronomy. You'll get a short chapter of blessings, though they're huge, right? It doesn't take a long time to explain them. 
hey, if you do everything I'm telling you, the rain is going to come at the right time. You guys have so much produce, you won't even know where to store it. Anybody who attacks you, one of you will make 10 of them flee. So you, you're going to have everything you ever want. So it, it takes, you know, a few verses to explain that, but not many. And then you get the curses. And that takes like two or three chapters. <laughs> and that's like, and if you don't do what I'm telling you, here's how it's going to go down. And the ultimate curse is you're going to be removed from the land. And that's the dominion thing. Yes, that's geography. So, you know, when you're removed from the land, your dominion is removed. So that's the next section, the blessings and the curses. The final section is the witnesses. So I'll just read a paragraph on the witnesses. Inasmuch as a treaty arrangement was in the final analysis, a legal transaction, proper protocol required that it be drawn up before and certified by appropriate witnesses. So <clears throat> I'm not going to read him here. I've, I've covered what I want to out of Merrill. But I want to say, as a trivia question, who, who, who are the witnesses? Right? Who who are you going to get to watch Israel sign this deal with God? Well, how about all creation? Mm -hmm. Right? The yeah. stars, the, the heavenlies are going to watch this. Everybody is a witness to this. Creation itself is the witness. And so that's why when you get into these courtroom scenes and the prophets, in Isaiah and so on, they will introduce it with something like, I call heaven and earth to witness this. Because they were the witnesses at the original covenant, Mosaic covenant. Right. So yeah. anyway, I'm just, that, that's what I mean by, I'm not trying to <clears throat> increase people's knowledge about the Bible so much. I'm trying to increase their understanding of it. And some of that necessarily implies knowledge. You know, you have to have a certain amount of knowledge to grasp anything. But what I'm really driving at is I want people to know what they're holding in their hands when they read the scriptures. So it's not only the word of God. I want them to understand the structure of that and the significance of that. So... Now that we're warmed up, Hampton, okay. <laughs> we're ready to race. So <clears throat> let me find my pages and Dempster that I want to get to. Okay. Um, I will read his introduction to Deuteronomy so we get where he's coming from. So his title for this is not a separate chapter. This is just the next section in this part of his book. Deuteronomy at the border of Canaan. And right there, don't you see geography? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it's critical to the setting of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy functions as a transitional book. Mm, kind of <laughs> both concluding the Torah and introducing the history recorded in Joshua through 2 Kings. Numbers ended with Israel on the plains of Moab 
on the east side of the Jordan, across from the Canaanite city of Jericho. This is where Deuteronomy begins. Associated with this beginning are the elements of suspense, urgency, and anticipation. The fulfillment of the promise of land awaits. The hour is critical. Will the new generation fail like the old? Yes. <laughs> but anyway, I've spoiled them. <clears throat> you gave away the, the story. Okay. Yeah, until our cleanup hitter gets up there, we're not going to do a very good job. And our cleanup hitter is invincible. He's omnipotent and omniscient. So he carries out the will of God. That's God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the son. But um, Dempster goes on. Consequently, the geographical motif is omnipresent. Okay, so it is. So he details that. So geography is very important to what Dempster has to say. And you can see that in Deuteronomy. That's there. The way I would describe Deuteronomy <clears throat> to harmonize with Dempster is it looks to me like the book of Deuteronomy is the prescription of how to enforce the dominion over the land. That's how I would have done this chapter. Right. Yeah, like that. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. He He didn't do that because he's... He's so bent on his themes. Um, it's not criticism. I, I've learned so much from Dempster. But that, that's how I would have done it. So I'm going to skip a few of these paragraphs over to the next page. The paragraph that starts, the geographical theme overshadows the genealogical one. But the latter is still present. So genealogy is important in Deuteronomy. It does get overshadowed by the geography. All of that, to me, is overshadowed by the structure of the book itself, by the covenant nature of it. But So now next paragraph, Hampton. There are two Deuteronomic laws that stress the importance of individuals within the nation who will provide rule and guidance, the laws pertaining to kingship and to prophecy. Both laws contrast sharply with the way other nations choose kings and prophets. Although other nations have these leaders, Israel must model radical alternatives. That's a great way to say that. Mm -hmm. That was well said. So <clears throat> Israel's concept and function of kingship should have been much different than the surrounding, na surrounding nations. And their concept and function of prophecy should have as well. It didn't, but it should have. Right. So the, Israel really has a struggle with um, wanting to be like the nations. In fact, they say that explicitly. Right, they do. When to Samuel, right? We want a king just like the other nations, and you should just instantly start crying, shaking your head. Well, you're doing the exact opposite of what God wants you to do. 
He wants you not to be like the other nations. So, so in our own administration of dominion over our own families with our children, have we communicated that to them? My, my guess is we haven't be in the world, but not of the world. That's a, a great way to say it, but I don't think we've communicated that. Not enough. Yeah. Not, a, not enough. We've maybe given it some lip service, but our kids generally look like the world does. And that, that, that saddens me. We're supposed but, to change culture, not be like culture. That's right. I have a, back up about a couple sentences before that paragraph he has uh, to be called by Yahweh's name mm. he's referring to Deuteronomy 28.10 I had highlighted this mostly because it's a translation question good let's but hear it says to be called by Yahweh's name means that the people are the peculiar possession of Yahweh mm-hmm. a concept very similar to being made in God's image and I, that stuck out to me because I think almost all translations, pretty much, if you looked at the parallels, you know, other translations of that verse, then all the peoples on the earth will see that you are called by the name. And that's the NIV, called by the name, New American Standard, ESV. Um, we have it. All the people of the earth will see that you belong to the Lord which is what he says it means. Mm-hmm. So we, you must, God says, my name will dwell. Okay. Well, it's not just his name. It's God himself who's dwelling. Yeah. That's so that's sort of an idiom, I think. And then the question, I mean, some people don't like that we changed it to you belong, but, um, but anyway, so that just kind of stood out to me. Uh, if so you would you that there then the, the pastor has to explain what it means yeah. <laughs> instead of just reading the translation that says what it means so would you it's always a you, conflict there's a lot of those right <clears throat> so would you call that dynamic what we have done is more dynamic that's right yeah. so that's one of your principles that you guys followed as you were right. translating but you know that's a the NIV and NLT are um, more dynamic, except um, NIV says "called by the name of the Lord," mm-hmm. and um, NLT says all the nations of the world will see that you are people claimed by the Lord. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, that's just those little kind. Those kinds of things stand out to me because of being involved in that whole translation. Sure. But then, so the, then to me, um, the real value of that though, is that your translators will typically explain that. So as you're reading, you know, here's the text, the way they've translated it, but then you can look down and see, they'll detail why they're saying it the way yeah, they we, we actually do put literally, you know, and the Hebrews. Yeah, here's what it literally says. The name of the Lord is called over you. Yes, and here's why we've translated it like this. So that, see, to me, that's a tremendous resource then. You're getting the literal word, but you're getting it 
translated dynamically and you're getting all of that with explanation. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so he had mentioned um, like the passage in Deuteronomy about the Kings. So chapter 17, 14 through 20. So let's just read that. When you come to the land, your God is giving you and take it over and live in it. And then say, I will select a king like all the nations surrounding me. <laughs> that is exactly what they said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you must select without fail a king whom the Lord your God chooses. From among your fellow citizens, you must appoint a king. You may not designate a foreigner who's not one of your fellow Israelites. Moreover, he must not accumulate horses for himself or allow the people to return to Egypt to do so. For the Lord has said you must never again return that way. Furthermore, he must not marry many wives lest his affections turn aside, and he must not accumulate much silver and gold. I mean, you can hardly read this without seeing Solomon. Yeah. <laughs> he did all of those things. And he was a wise guy, too. <laughs> he was a wise guy. <laughs> and he, he, when, it, when he sits on his royal throne, he must make a copy of this law on a scroll given to him by the Levitical priests. It must be with him constantly, and he must read it as long as he lives, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and observe all the words of this law in these statutes and carry them out. Let's pause there for a second. Isn't that what I, what I was trying to say? That's what Deuteronomy is. Yeah, It's the imposition of the dominion. It's, I think Dempster had done better to handle it that way. But <clears throat> so then, and I, but yeah, you just you have to sit there and think about Solomon, all of his wisdom, and go and I guess power corrupts. Yeah, I think um, the wives turned his heart away. The wife did turn his heart. Then he will not exalt himself above his, above his fellow citizens or turn from the commandments to the right or left. He and his descendants will enjoy many years ruling over his kingdom. There you go. His dominion. There you go. There you go. So then I wanted to read, we'll get back to Dempster in a second, but I just want to read these so we have them in our mind as we discuss these subjects. So then uh, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 22. So next chapter. <clears throat> this is about the prophets. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, you must not learn the abhorrent practice practices of those nations. There must never be found among you anyone who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, anyone who practices divination, an omen reader, a soothsayer, a sorcerer, one who casts spells, one who conjures up spirits, a practitioner of the occult, or a necromancer. Whoever does these things is abhorrent to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God is about to drive them out 
from before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Those nations that you're about to dispossess, listen to omen readers and diviners. But the Lord your God has not given you permission to do such things. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. So let's pause there for a sec. I know I'm interrupting the text, but see, we usually start there. Right. And don't realize that that's in the middle of this context of what the other guys are doing. That they're, it's all witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Right? So the real prophets should be from outside of that circle. You don't you witchcraft ultimately. I think people struggle with this. They they sort of relegate that to Harry Potter kind of stuff. Witchcraft ultimately is the attempt to manipulate the heavenly realm for purely human motive. That's what witchcraft is. And God wants the opposite. He wants the imposition of the heavenly onto the human, not the manipulation of the heavenly by the human. Right. So I'll continue on. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This accords with what happened at Horeb in the day of the assembly. You ask the Lord your God, please do not make us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore or see this great fire anymore lest we die. So you know what that's referring to, right? Here's God on Mount Sinai and the people are going, we're not going up there. Mm -hmm. That'll kill us. So you go up there and bring down, you know, what he's saying. How many people people realize that's the birth of a prophet? That's the birth of the institution of prophecy. So I thought of it that way either. Right. That's Moses saying, this is how we got here. So anyway, then the Lord said to me, what they have said is good. I'll raise up a prophet like you for them. From among their fellow Israelites, I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them whatever I command. I will personally hold responsible anyone who then pays no attention to the words that the prophet speaks in my name. So that's Kierkegaard saying a couple ways you could go wrong with truth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So... But if any prophet presumes to speak, presumes to speak anything in my name that I have not authorized him to speak or speak in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. Now, if you say to yourselves, well, how can we tell that a message is not from the Lord? Whenever a prophet speaks in my name and the prediction is not fulfilled, then I have not spoken it. That prophet is presumed to speak it. So you need not fear him. So they, they use the term presumption. Have you ever heard a uh, Christian prophet today? Well, I have some 
friends that are, you know, believe in prophecy is still active. And, and I always think about this, this passage. Yeah, me too. And I go, you know, I know, I think you were talking fourth, maybe it wasn't you. I just recently heard something about foretelling and foretelling, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, um, so I don't know. I just, I, the foretelling part, maybe, but the foretelling part, I'd be afraid to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've, I've heard that. I don't that. think they hold people to the same standard. Today. Today. Yeah. So I've, I've, question, I got you. So I, I've heard that, you know, people, oh, you know, send me a thing on YouTube or something. Here's prophet so-and-so. And I'll, I'll listen to it. And it always scares me to death because I'm like, man, you know, the parts of that that uh, weren't foretelling, you know, the parts that were just him re- basically preaching, I, I got it. But the you could just turn to a Bible passage and read it. You don't need to, right? He's not saying anything that, you couldn't get you don't just need to name it. it. You don't need to call it prophecy. Right. I mean, I'd call it exhortation. Right. Um, and then if there is foretelling, man, and that's why you don't see that too much, if at all, because they know that can be checked. Yeah. So that that but that always scares me that someone would accept that label. If they didn't, if they weren't really exercising that gift of prophecy, that scares me to death for that person. Mm-hmm. But, so I just wanted to read those passages so we had them in our mind as Dempster went forward. Okay. Okay. So next next passage back to Dempster. <clears throat> this is the paragraph that starts out the law of kingship. The law of kingship anticipates the fulfillment of earlier promises, right? God had told Abraham, kings will come from you. So, you know, we have to be careful when the Israelites say to Samuel, we want a king. I understand, you know, why they're asking that. That that's not that request is not outside the boundaries of scripture. But their motive is completely wrong. Yeah. And I, I, right, they their motive is to be like the other nations. Is really they're tired of getting. I'm just going to be the man on the street today, Hampton. <laughs> they're tired of getting the crap beat out of them by their neighbors. So they want to be like their neighbor. And you're just shaking your head, going, "Well, the way to not get picked on is to obey God." And he'll take care of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he'll take care of those guys. So they're looking. So, in other words, we're going to get my favorite term from Dempster: the Israelites are going to try to domesticate God's promise for a king. So that's what he goes on to say: the law of kingship anticipates the fulfillment of earlier promises, as well as an Israelite attempt to domesticate kingship in order to be like the other nations. 
<laughs> so here's my quick one sentence exhortation to myself, to you, to everyone that listens to us. Don't domesticate the words of God. Let them, let them have their full divine amplification. Don't pocket them. Don't mold them into your understanding. Just let them be. Live by them, right? But let them, don't change them. <clears throat> so this attempt would clearly represent a rejection of divine rule. That's another great sense. When you domesticate the promises of God, you're really rejecting him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're rejecting his dominion. Nevertheless, this legislation accommodates such a desire by essentially transforming the institution of kingship. And, you know, as you read through Israel's history, you see that institution fall. And then that's what we've seen in the U.S. Our institutions have fallen. So yeah, when it said that in 1810, there must never be found among you anyone who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. I thought of a Manasseh. King sure. He did that. Yeah. So just as, you know, a few brief sentences, when Manasseh was king of Judah, witchcraft reigned. And his rule was almost entirely demonic. And then he repented. And he repented and God Forget honored his repentance. Yeah. <clears throat> so future kings must be native Israelites marked by distinctive behavior. They cannot depend on. <laughs> so he uses the term, right, right, that. Is that a German? Yeah, German term. Realpolitik, right? The can't can't rely on spin, right? Mm -hmm. You need you can't you don't need to be a Republican or a Democrat. You just need to follow God. Their source of authority derives from copying the Torah and reading it regularly. I mean, what if uh, Biden had to hand copy? The Constitution, any of them, Trump, <laughs> Trump, Bush, right, Obama, yeah. any of them. When you take office, here's here's what you do on you, your inauguration. You read this. Yeah. Well, on your inauguration, you start copying. We're all going to watch you write this down. And then every morning you read this before you go to work. How many issues would that solve in America? About all of them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, their source of authority derives from copying the Torah and reading it regularly. This will lead to a lasting and appropriate royal dominion, ruling in humility and the fear of Yahweh. There you go. Then he has a section on the prophets. Prophets will not depend on various esoteric rituals, okay, no witchcraft, to discern the will of God. God will raise up a successor to Moses who declared the will of God to the people at Sinai. God will simply place his words in the mouth of the prophet who will then relay the message to the people. 
There is total dependence on divine communication, which supports and confirms the Torah. Since signs are given by which true prophecy can be distinguished from false, it's clear that an institution is envisaged, a succession of, prof of Moses-like prophets who will declare the will of God. Now, <clears throat> simply stated, that paragraph was accurate. But nuanced, it almost was misleading. Because, well, his description, here's the sentence. God will simply place his words in the mouth of the prophet. I disagree. It's, I don't think prophecy's dictation. That's what he's describing. God will place his words in their mouth. They're not doing that. I've mentioned it a number of times, right, that I think the closest you get to that, well, one, you know, directly just bypasses well, the, the literal verse 18, Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up a prophet and then I will put my words in his mouth. Yes. So, um, that's so why am I phrased too literally? And that's yes, how it that's, that's, that's my how point. It really works. That's exactly my point. It, it, so that's why we read 1 Corinthians 2. Paul, when he's explicitly describing revelation and inspiration, doesn't say that. He says combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. You And, and the reason I feel... I know how bold I'm sounding right now, <laughs> right? Okay. But the reason I feel that way is here's a telltale sign. If, if you give a biblical scholar, you know, taking the Old Testament guy and you, you give him no context, you just hand him a paragraph and say, who is this? They'll tell you. That's either, they'll say, oh, that's Isaiah or Jeremiah or whoever, right? Mm -hmm. Ezekiel. They'll identify the human author. Now, how can they do that? If it's all just directly from God's mouth, how are they able to discern the human author? Right, right. Yeah. Because you can. John in the Greek is way easier than reading Peter. Way easier. Any, any student of the languages knows that, that those guys are different. And Luke's probably the most complicated, right? It's just as far as grammarian. Yeah. You can tell. Now, if it, if it if was they, just dictation, it would all be the same. It would all be the same. So I understand God saying, I'll put my words in his mouth. You know, obviously God's not lying. But, but that's almost like a shorthand description. Maybe we should have translated it. No. I will, I will, <laughs> I will inspire. <laughs> yes, I will reveal. I will reveal. I would say I would reveal my thoughts to the inspired prophet. That way you're getting revelation and inspiration. But, I mean, that gets, you can't theologize every past. You know what I mean? It's, I'd, I'd rather leave it how it is and then have the discussion around that. Right. So, 
But it, but I think that's really if important. If we translate it too well, we take away the preacher's job. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's another. So, man, I'm just such a bad chapter and verse guy, Hampton. So give me a second to find this. But you've heard me say at least a handful of times, haven't you, that Jeremiah is where to turn for a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. because he's explicitly combating false prophets and Israel's about to be exiled and he's saying that and that is perfectly in line with God's revealed message right mm-hmm. for hundreds of years right these are the curses if you don't obey the covenant and the final curse is you're going to be removed from the land so here's Jeremiah essentially saying well here we are it's exactly what God said. Here's how it's going down. And then you have this whole host of false prophets saying, thus says the Lord. And, you know, oh, you're his people. He forgives. He won't ultimately punish his people. The Gentiles are worse than us. All superficially true. None of it ultimately true. But how are you going to win that argument in the public square? Because mm-hmm. their, their spin is palatable. Your spin, or you're not even spinning. Your message is not palatable. To get on board with your message, people are going to have to repent. And they don't want to do that. Yeah. And that's, that's the ultimate issue. But when Jeremiah gets into trying to explain this, you can almost see frustration. Like, who wants to explain their own calling, right? You sound like you're tooting your own horn. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, if uh, Sophia used this illustration before, my daughter Sophia, if she ever questioned if I was her dad, I'm not sure how I would defend that. I would be so aghast that that was even a question, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I don't know if my response would be intelligible. Right. <laughs> so it's weird when the, the prophets are just put in such a horrible position. But here's, here's how he, you can tell he's reluctant to do this. But when Jeremiah gets to this point, he says, this in Jeremiah 23, verse 9. Here is what the Lord says concerning the false prophets. My heart and my mind are deeply disturbed. I tremble all over. I'm like a drunk person, like a person who's had too much wine because of the way of the Lord and his holy word are being mistreated. Let's pause there. You, you see his reluctance to, you know, like, I, I'm going to come across like a drunk. Right. If, if you make me get in the mud with you and try to explain this, you can see his reluctance. To me, that's a huge mark of a genuine guy. <laughs> so anyway, then he goes, uh, for the land is full of people unfaithful to him. They live wicked lives. And they misuse their power. So the land's dried up because it's under his curse. 
right? That's it's a direct reference to Deuter- the curses of Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. So the pastures in the wilderness are withered. Moreover, the Lord says both the prophets and the priests are godless. Right? They, I'm stepping outside the text. The institutions have fallen. The priesthood has fallen. The institute, the school of the prophets has fallen. So anyway, back to the text. Um, I have even found them doing evil in my temple. So the paths they follow will be dark and slippery. For they stumble and fall headlong. For I'll bring disaster on them. A day of reckoning is coming for them. The Lord affirms it. The Lord says, I saw the prophets of Samaria doing something that is dis- that was disgusting. They prophesied in the name of the God Baal and led my people Israel astray. But I see the prophets of Jerusalem doing something just as shocking. They're unfaithful to me and continually prophesy lies. So they give encouragement to the people who are doing evil with the result that they do not stop their evil doing. I consider all of them as bad as the people of Sodom and the citizens of Jerusalem as bad as the people of Gomorrah. So then I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have something to say concerning the prophets of Jerusalem. I will make those prophets eat the bitter food of suffering and drink the poison water of judgment. For the prophets of Jerusalem are the reason that the ungodliness has spread throughout the land. The Lord of heaven's armies says to the people of Jerusalem, do not listen to what those prophets are saying to you. They're filling you with false hopes. They're reporting visions of their own imaginations, not something the Lord has given them to say. They continually say to those who reject what the Lord has said, things will go well for you. They say to all those who follow the stubborn inclinations of their own hearts, nothing bad will happen to you. Yet which of them has ever stood in the Lord's inner circle so they could see and hear what he has to say? So let's pause there, Hampton. Let me translate that another way. Yet which of them has ever stood in the Lord's council? So we've discussed that before, right? Mm-hmm. The Lord the Lord has a boardroom. And he discusses in the boardroom what's going to go down. And that is the, what would you call it? The womb of prophecy. That's how a prophet could know what's going to happen in the future. But you have to be at that board meeting. The passage that details that, right, how that went down in real life at the end of First Kings with Ahab and Jehoshaphat, the scene with Micaiah, the right. real prophet. But here's Jeremiah essentially saying to the false prophets, I haven't seen you at the board meeting. 
Yeah. And I just, I just want people to have that in their mind again. So that they like Isaiah six, same thing. That's a, that's a uh, courtroom scene, Mm -hmm. heavenly court council scene. You have another, you know, Psalm 82, I think is a council scene. Book of Job is a council scene, right? Those first two chapters. Right. So it's explicit, you know, in some places, but I want people again, back to that phrase, not to just have, knowledge about the bible i want them to have understanding of it so the roots of prophecy the birthplace of prophecy was moses on sinai mediating god's presence to the people the womb of prophecy is the board meeting if you're not at the board meeting then you're not a prophet now, in the New Testament, through the progress of, you know, the unfolding of God's will down through history, when you get to the New Testament, the Spirit's inside of you. So you don't necessarily have, Paul doesn't have to go to the board meeting. So that's not what he says in 1 Corinthians 2. In 1 Corinthians 2, the board meeting came to him through the Holy Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm just detailing, you know, the essence of these concepts of kingship, of prophecy, and how how they're the bedrock of how we should build our theology about those subjects on that bedrock. That's all I'm trying to do. And I apologize for reading Jeremiah the way I did. It's almost like I felt like I'm standing in his shoes. But when you you get into those guys' lives, you you feel like that. I mean, I bet he was just so insulted that he even had to defend himself. And he's, by the way, he's down in a well most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Oh, gosh. So anyway, how about... Since you rabbit trailed me on those subjects, Hampton, how about if we get back to Dempster? Because we can finish this out real quick. I've only got a, a few things to say. So back to Dempster now. How about if we do the paragraph that starts, as noted before, the sense of doom found at the margins of the book. He's talking about like the curse section. Right. Um, like Leviticus, the list of blessings. That's chapter Leviticus 28, 3 to 14. For keeping the law and the list of curses, 28, 15 to 69, for violations is heavily weighted in favor of the curses. Yeah, like 3 to 1. The additional fact that these curses themselves end on a definite note of exile is certainly not promising, but indicative of the future. When there's reference to the people, in their relationship with God, they're described in pejorative terms as stiff-necked. You saw stuff like that in Jeremiah, right? Mm -hmm. Who rebel against the Lord. They require radical heart surgery. This makes the laws about sonship, disobedience, and curse. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 23, almost prophetic of Israel's future. 
This text notes that a disobedient and rebellious son should be executed. This is followed by a law that requires the corpse of an executed criminal to be hung on a tree until sundown, since cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Any guess as to why Jesus was crucified on a wooden cross? To fulfill that. To fulfill that. Yeah. So imagine, you know, that road to Emmaus when he's talking to the disciples and he says, this whole thing was written about me. He's the son. Mm -hmm. God's curses came to pass. Luckily, his grace trumps them, but they came to pass. So, um, let's finish up last couple paragraphs of this on Deuteronomy. We'll be done with Dempster's treatment of that. The conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy brings together these twin themes of geography and genealogy. There, the great leader Moses is granted a vision of the land of Canaan from a distance. It's described in great detail and is directly linked to the very first promise God made to Abraham when he entered Canaan. The focus shifts from the land to the unique prophet who's unable to lead the children of Israel into the land of promise, despite his astonishing intimacy with God. He's without parallel as a leader of Israel and is depicted passing the torch of leadership to Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim, a man known primarily for his faith in the power and provision of God. Moses, like Adam and Eve, knows God in a face-to-face -face relationship and like them, dies outside Eden. He stands under the curse of the law, dies outside the land of promise, while the new generation of Israelites will enter. He's been responsible for saving the people repeatedly, but at the end of the day, he remains outside. In some strange way, he receives his wish He's cursed so that Israel can be blessed. Wasn't that a fantastic paragraph? Yes, I had highlighted that one. Man. Then he finishes up like this. In the concluding statement about Moses, that there never has arisen a prophet like Moses, whom God knew face to face. That's 3410. There's the implication that many prophets have come and gone, patterned after the Mosaic model in the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, yet no one has risen to his stature. The text signals the end, not only of an historical epic, but of the literary document of the Torah. Conveniently, it not only brings closure to this text, but prepares the way for the next section of the canon, the prophets, which detail the exploits of many of these individuals, 
Moses's incomparability and the new title given to him, servant of Yahweh, prefigure another unique prophetic servant who also died outside the land for his people. Again, Dempster's hard to beat. Very good. That's so great. Um, that's I, so great. Uh, have, you know, Exodus 34.10, I mean, Deuteronomy 34.10, no prophet ever again arose in Israel like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. Did God yeah. tell Moses that? <laughs> and he wrote that down? Or, no, that's an editor. Was that added, you know, later? Yeah, probably Joshua added that, I'd imagine. Or no, maybe even much later. Like Samuel? Yeah, I'd imagine. Um, yeah. That's, or the chronicler? <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. But, um, yeah, you, Moses couldn't have written it. How could, right? Well, I mean, God could have told Moses. No one will ever, till, till the Messiah comes, there will never be another prophet like you. Yeah, like you. Yeah. But it would, yeah. Anyway. But anyway, yeah, how fantastic. So that's when when we say, you know, the Tanakh, the T, the vowels in the word Tanakh are irrelevant. It's just the, the T, the N, and the K at the end. Right, so the T is for Torah, and that's what Dempster was referring to. The Torah is now over, right? Chronologically, the next section is going to be the N, which stands for Nevi'im, which is the Hebrew word for prophets, and that'll be divided, you know, the former prophets, the latter prophets, but all the prophets, and then the K is for Ketuvim, the writings. So that, that's like Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Psalms, stuff like that. Okay. Well, we finished the Torah. Way to go, Hampton. Okay. Well, I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Go!